1: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Check the backseat
4: I'm real uh, revolutionary right now. <laughs> like,
5: wow. we support this man, black media. He makes sure that our stories are told. Uh, thank you for being
6: the voice of black America, Roller. Hey Blake, I love y'all. All momentum we have now
3: It's Wednesday, August 24, 2022. I am Therese Garnier sitting in for Roland today. And here's what's coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on Black Star Network. Today, President Joe Biden detailed his plans to deliver on a campaign promise to provide student debt relief for millions of Americans. We're going to break this down. His plan with Massachusetts Representative Ayanna Pressley, Jared Bass, the Senior Director of Higher Education and Policy at the Center for American Progress and economist Dr. Julian Mavo. The state of Louisiana is delaying the transfer of juveniles to the Angola Prison Campus on September 15th. But what is gonna happen to them after the 16th? Well, one of the attorneys who filed the lawsuit to stop the transfer will be here to let us know. Later, we'll take a look at last night's primary election results, and we'll also get to talk to King Jacquel Martin, who faithfully served his country only to come home to be treated like a criminal. I'll speak to the Army veteran who chronicled his violent encounter with a white police officer in his award-winning film a war on friendly grounds now also in today's Tech talk segment you'll get to meet an author who found a amazingly creative way to expand the imagination and reality of children with 4d characters now guys you know what time it is it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin unfiltered streaming on Black Star Network let's go He's
2: got it. whatever the- Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find, and when it breaks, he's right on time, and it's rolling.
3: President Joe Biden, thousands of folks with student loans will get some relief as he announces the cancellation of up to $20,000 for those who earn less than $125,000 a year. President Biden said that his long-sought reprieve for Americans saddled by payments would aid in boosting the U.S. economy.
5: There are three key factors we're going to do. First, we've made incredible progress advancing America's economic recovery. We've wound down pandemic relief programs like the ones on unemployment insurance and small businesses. It's time we do the same thing for student loans. Student loan payments pause is going to end. It's going to end December 30. I'm extending to December 31st, 2022, and it's going to end at that time. It's time for the payments to resume. Second, my campaign for president, I made a commitment. I made a commitment that would provide student debt relief. And I'm honoring that commitment today. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most working and middle class people hit especially hard during the pandemic, making under one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year. You make more than that, you don't qualify. No high income individual or high income household on top of the five percent in the top five percent of incomes, by the way, will benefit from this action period. In fact, about 90% of the, of the, the eligible beneficiaries make under $75,000 as a family. Here's what that means. If you make under $125,000, you get $10,000 knocked off your student debt. If you make under $125,000 a year and you received a Pell Grant, you'll get an additional $10,000 knocked off that total for a total of $20,000 relief. Ninety five percent of the borrowers can benefit from these actions. That's forty three million people of the forty three million over 60 percent are Pell Grant recipients. That's twenty seven million people who will get twenty thousand dollars in debt relief. Nearly forty five percent can have their student debt fully canceled. That's twenty million people who can start getting on with their lives. All this means people can start finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. And by the way, when this happens, the whole economy is better off in the coming weeks. The Department of Education will lay out in detail a short and simple form to apply for this relief, along with information. When this application process opens, by resuming student loan payments at the same time as we provide targeted relief, we're taking an economically responsible course. As a consequence, about $50 billion a year will start coming back into the, set of the treasury because of the resumption of debt. Independent experts agree that these actions, taken together, will provide real benefits for families without meaningful effect on inflation.
3: Student debt disproportionately affects black borrowers. Last year, 86.6% of black college students took out federal loans to attend a four-year college, compared to just 59.9% of white students. Now, black borrowers carry an average of 53,000 in debt, while an average of white borrowers only uh, hold about 12,000 in debt. Well, joining me right now, I have Representative Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts to discuss Biden's plan. Now, Representative Presley, um, you have been calling for the cancellation of $50,000 in federal student debt. How do you feel about what the president uh, proposed, which was about $40,000 shy of what you and others, such as Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, had hoped for?
7: Sure, good to be with you, Therese. You know, first and foremost, I think it's important we acknowledge just how far we've, we've come, Uh, Student debt cancellation was an issue that many uh, considered fringe and really questioned um, who, in fact, was impacted by this nearly $2 trillion crisis. They really tried to marginalize the issue and thought that student debt cancellation would be regressive in impact. Uh, And the fact that uh, any cancellation has happened uh, is a testament to uh, the strength of this movement, those who shared their stories of hardship, uh, and our partners. You know, at the end of the day, uh, he has, the president has the authority, and so uh, he could pick up that pin. Uh, I'm not the president, but I am. Um, I remain deeply committed to the issue. I'm, I'm proud of our movement. I'm proud of our partnership. And um, we have been imploring uh, President Biden uh, to act, and he heeded our calls today. And so, uh, but I do think it's important to, con- to contextualize just how far we've come that in order to get this action today. And it is an unprecedented one. So we really can't celebrate enough just how impactful this will be for the people with student loan debt 20 million people will have their debt fully canceled, and another 23 million will have their debt reduced. So this relief will help them be able to purchase a home, build wealth, uh, start or grow their families, and put more money in their pockets. Uh, and this is important. Although we have pa- passed the Inflation Reduction uh, Act, um, people are still feeling uh, the hurt, um, and uh, and will be until we round uh, that corner and they begin to feel the impacts. And uh, we're still in a pandemic-induced recession. Uh, so this is responsive uh, to the uh, multiracial multi-generational uh, coalition that elected uh, this president and most importantly it's its response to the needs of the people who have been burdened hmm.
3: so this is the first step that's being taken so are you and others going to push to maybe get that other 40,000 going or w- what's your plans what's next
7: well I mean what I'm focused on right now is just making sure that uh, that people are you um, applying for and accessing this relief. Uh, more info will be coming and be available in the coming weeks, but borrowers can sign up to find out if they qualify for debt cancellation, as well as the revamped repayment program. So, I want to encourage people to go to studentaid.gov slash debt relief to sign up to be notified automatically when this becomes available. Uh, I'll be, uh, you know, doing my best to conduct uh, my own vigilant oversight here, um, because what's important is that people are feeling the impact of this relief again this is a crisis that impacts people from every walk of life um, you know educators uh, struggling to meet uh, monthly minimum income uh, monthly minimum payments uh, seniors living on fixed incomes uh, 76 years old in my district still paying on student loans uh, parents who are paying their loans still and now uh, paying their children's because they took out parent plus loans uh, so this is an economic justice issue it's a gender justice issue because two-thirds of this debt is uh, held uh, by women disproportionately. And it is a racial justice issue. And that's why we continue to push on this, um, because we know that this will help to narrow the racial wealth gap. And we know that uh, black uh, students borrow at higher rates because of discriminatory policies um, like redlining, which have denied our families' ability to build generational wealth. Um, so although there have been gains in income... Um, We know that income uh, is not well, and so our students borrow at higher rates and also default uh, at higher rates. And so uh, this is going to be meaningful and transformative, and it is going to be uh, deeply felt. Hmm. Uh, We have more work to do to address the root causes of affordability when it comes to higher education, and so we have to uh, treat public higher education, invest in it as the public good that it is. Um, We need to expand Pell Grants. We need tuition-free a community college, and we also have to invest in our HBCUs, which have been um, chronically and woefully uh, underinvested in. But no doubt about it, uh, this is um, a meaningful and transformative moment, and, and I thank the administration for heeding our calls.
3: And you and others work very hard to help push this along. So thank you so much for all the efforts you put into this. And also thank you for joining us on the show today. Now, I would like to switch it over to two guests that we have, as well as our panelists, um, piggybacking off what Representative Presley had mentioned about how this could impact the economy as well as inflation. Well, joining me right now, I'd like to bring in Jared Bass, the Senior Director of Higher Education Policy at the Center for American Progress and economist Dr. Julian Malvo, Dean of College of Ethics Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, or yes, Los Angeles, to explain the cancellation, um, how this cancellation could boost the economy. So we're going to have you guys jump in and join us and tell us how can this impact our economy? If I can go to um, our first speaker, I'm sorry, I just lost y'all's names. Uh, let's have Jared. Chime in and tell us how is this going to boost the economy?
8: So you know, I think the congresswoman already touched on that. Um, you know, specifically, this will help borrowers uh, to build wealth, purchase homes, start businesses, uh, save for retirement. So definitely some economic benefits there. Um, but also, you know, specifically for Black borrowers, this is advancing racial equity. Uh, the president is you know, building upon and um, holding his commitment, his campaign promise to cancel at least $10,000 in student loan debt. Um, and also, you know, his uh, executive order about advancing racial equity. And we're going to see that for black borrowers through this action today. Um, so, you know, we're talking about narrowing the, uh, the racial wealth gap as well as, you know, to um, help the economy, but also economic opportunity for, for black borrowers in particular.
3: There's some stats that I was able to uh, find earlier today. Um, there are some individuals, including the NAACP, the Congressional Black Caucus, that are seeking greater debt forgiveness. Now, the impact, according to Liberty Street Economics, found that forgiving the 20 k per borrower would wipe out about 321 billion dollars in student loan debt for a third of borrowers, which will be about 12 million people. However, some argue the extra money that consumers will have now because they don't have that debt to spend that it could increase demand and actually accelerate inflation. So tell me a little bit about how you feel about those who make that argument.
9: Well, I think the argument is specious. Um, I'm sorry, rather I thought she was talking to me. But in any case, I think the argument is specious. I think that clearly people have more money, they will spend it, but they may also save it. One of the things that we notice about um, basically the heavy burden of student debt that so many young people carry, and some not so young people. uh, Representative Presley mentioned a woman in her 70s who was still paying student loan debt. But here's the deal. People who have student loans are basically of delaying adult decisions. They can't buy homes. Um, they also delaying employment decisions. They end up going to work somewhere that they don't necessarily want to work because they have to pay the student loan back. We in the public sector that are hurt, if you don't want to be a stockbroker but a teacher but you can't afford it, think about the implications there as we're talking now about a teacher shortage. So by delaying adult, adult decisions and by allowing your decisions to be basically shaped by the student loan debt, you're basically harming the economy. Now, to be sure, if someone gets $10,000 and goes to Disneyland, um, aggregatively, that may be inflationary. But if people use the money to reduce the wealth gap by doing such things as investing in a home, that will actually increase racial wealth. And that's been the issue. The racial wealth gap is a function of public policy over the years that has essentially disadvantaged, systematically disadvantaged black people. And we have to be clear about that. And so this is really, I, I, I'm i very pleased, of course, uh, I'm with our, uh, Congresswoman Presley, uh, 10 grand or 20 grand is nice. It would be nicer to do something like 50, as she and her colleagues had asked for earlier. It would be, but the other, let's not forget, the other piece of this that's really important is what the president has said about the rest of the, of, uh, Legislation he's proposing. He's saying that they'll cap the amount that you have to pay back to five percent of your income Now you find people again. They're living in their parents basements because they can't afford rent So if you're capped at five percent for paying paying back That's a gift. I mean it's really important because student loan has been student loans have become Crippling for so many people and then other um Provisions that the president talked about today that are really important. So while many of us are not dancing in the street, we're dancing. Uh, this is this is really great legislation, and we're pleased by it.
3: Thank you, Dr. Malvo. You know, I want to bring in our panelists because I'm sure they have a ton of questions for the both of you. Um, well, wh- who I have joining us as far as panelists goes, we have Robert Patillo, the executive director of Rainbow Push, uh, Push Coalition. Peach Tree Street Project. Say that really fast, that's a tongue twister. Then we have Dr. Naomi Carter, the Associate Professor for the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. And then we also have Dr. Jason Nichols, Senior Lecturer, African American Studies Department, University of Maryland College. I love everyone that's coming from Maryland because that's where I graduated from. I got my undergrad there, so yes, I love it. So anyways, let's uh let's get uh going on that. Do you have any questions for um Jared as well as uh Doctor Malvo? sure, I'll
10: yes. hop in and I'll start. Okay, beat you to it, Jason, beat you. Uh, Dr. Malva, when they talk about the inflationary pressures that th- something like this will put on the market, really uh, can you compare that uh, in contrast yeah, that yeah. to the amount of money pumped into the top part of the economy by the tr- Trump tax cuts from 2017, where you had a direct injection two uh, trillion dollars into the economy, completely unpaid for, but you had none of this uh, backlash from Republicans talking about the inflationary pressure will put on the market?
9: Okay, my, my rainbow brother... Good to see you. Um, Let yeah, that's such a great question because anytime we do a tax cut for the wealthy, nobody talks about the inflationary implications of it. They just we just want to hook up these people because predatory capitalism essentially preserves capital. I think that if you contrast, as you say, the tax cuts that we've seen, there have been the Trump tax cuts. Um, <clears throat> if you compare that to the small, understand how small this is compared to what was done for these multi-bazillionaires. This is small, that each individual might get $10,000. Some will get, about half will get 20. Anyone who had a Pell Grant will get 20 as opposed to 10. But that's not a lot of money. It's it's a welcome step forward. But we look at some of the um, debt that people have it's not, uh, it's not that much. I'll have to tell folks, I was formerly president of Bennett College for Women, um, and when students graduated, I used to, I wasn't supposed to, but I could tell it now, I've been gone uh, 10 years. I used to look at what they owed just to get a sense of, because I'm an economist, get a sense of what's going on. And I found young people owed as much as $80,000. We said the average debt is about 30 for black women. Black women have more debt than anybody else, um, and it's higher, hitting on 40. But when I look through these, I see someone $80,000 in debt. Or, you know, I didn't see anybody with 100, but, you know, $50,000 in debt. How do you start your life with that much debt? And it is not inflationary to give people that little bit of money, as opposed to uh, what we did for the wealthy. Thanks, Robert.
3: <laughs> so, oh, yes. So, um, uh, Dr. Carter, do you have any questions? He's, All right, he, let's he, go it, on to Dr. Nichols.
11: Oh, sorry. So, firstly, uh, I just want to say go terps. Um, but I also think that, you know, a lot of people have talked about the primary issue being the cost of education and not doing something you guys, I about the cost of education and public education being the primary issue. I'm wondering uh, for Dr. Malvo and the other gentlemen, uh, what do you say when people talk about moral hazard and the fact or the idea that uh, if you forgive loans right now without addressing of the cost and the rising cost of higher education that later on people will take on debt and ex- and expect that their uh, loans will be forgiven in the future. So uh, I'm wondering what your response is to people who make that argument.
8: So I again, think I think the was this is a argument story we've seen. The ...event, um, you know, first and foremost. And then the president also mentioned this in his announcement. That we're talking about debt relief being coupled with, you know, controlling the cost of college, holding institutions accountable. Um, so those things all so go hand in
3: hand. having audio it's issues? There. Is that there. what you guys said earlier?
8: We also talked about this as well. Um, you know, we released a report that talks about after the president cancels the debt, you know, we need to increase grant aid, but we also need to hold colleges accountable for poor outcomes, you know, especially predatory institutions that prey upon black and brown borrowers, mm-hmm. um, and also control the cost of college as well. Um, so all of those things need to go hand in hand and go together, um, but that is really like, you know, a package deal. So we're seeing uh, some of that come out in the, you know, analysis today um, from, you know, the fact sheet and from others and from the White House and the announcement. But all those things have to go hand in hand if we're going to move forward, prevent another student debt crisis, and especially a student debt crisis for black borrowers. Mm-hmm.
3: Dr. You know,
9: the cost of attendance. the cost of attendance used to be covered by the Pell Grant. The Pell Grant used to cover the entire cost of attendance. Now it probably covers about 30% of it. So one of the things that has to happen is that we've got to address the Pell, which has not significantly been increased in quite some time. I think that the, the rather who raised a question about um, cost of higher education is also quite, it's right on time. Uh, if we look at the cost of higher education, it's out 20% increase in 10 years which actually has outstripped inflation in that same 10-year period. What, why are universities charging more money? And part of it is, of course, we, universities have to, I'm putting my college present hat on here, that if, if gas prices go up, if lighting goes up, utilities go up, and you wanna keep your salary, your faculty paid, costs add up but when we look at some of these costs they're not adding up that much and so responsibility the part of higher education leaders is very important and another big piece of it is important is the issue of accountability are your students able to graduate Mm -hmm. if not in four years then in six but when you have people who cannot graduate that adversely affects their credit especially if they took out student loans and then they drop out of school they still have to pay them and so I think that when we're looking at all of this, we really have to look at this systematically and talk about the cost of higher education. I don't I don't buy into the moral hazard argument, because what we've seen in the past 10 years is student debt going up a doubling, really, $1.7 trillion. And so the moral—most people don't want to take out student loans. They do because they have to. I, I just don't buy the moral whatever uh, argument, but I know where it came from.
3: Do any other panelists have any questions?
10: Uh, well, I, I think I do have a follow-up just on that point, because it seems that we only uh, start talking about morality when it comes to money for poor people. Uh, when you were talking about the $1,400 for the stimulus program, uh, we start to, uh, we heard politicians saying, well, they might go out there and spend it on uh, liquor and cigarettes and so on and so forth. And now we're hearing that, well, we give people student loan uh, repayment, not full repayment, even just $10,000 $20,000 off, that all of a sudden everybody's going to go start buying Gucci belts and everything and not not invested in the economy. Is there a... Very succinct Keynesian economic article, uh, argument that says that because we're looking at two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, that this is actually the type of direct injection of capital into a market that would stem this housing downturn that we're looking at and actually stabilize much of the U.S. economy. Should that be the argument we're making as opposed to the moralistic argument? And it's for both of you, of course.
9: I think we should be making the argument that you've made. I think there are other arguments that we can make. The moralistic argument is specious. Again, it's specious. Let's think about what happened um, when we basically bailed banks out. Did anybody say, what's the morality of bailing a bank out? Their their CEOs are still making multi-million dollar salaries, or the auto companies that were bailed out because of COVID. I mean, no one, they didn't cut their salaries, they didn't cut their benefits, they didn't cut their pensions. Nobody had anything to say moralistically about that. So you're absolutely right, Robert. Anytime somebody wants to talk about poor people, people pile on this moralistic argument. They also talk, about you know, they try to disparage poor people as if we don't have sense, talking about what well, they're going to buy a Gucci bag, etc. It's specious. And so we really need to talk about what the economic argument is for cutting the student loans uh, and it's not eliminating them, it's just cutting them by a little bit. In some cases, like the cases I cited earlier, we're talking about maybe 20 percent of somebody's loan. Jared,
3: can we I'll hear from you and then
8: we got to cut to a break. Sure. so I got to We've had a payment pause in place for, for over two years and people during that period have used the money that they're not paying on their student loans to pay for things like rent. Gas, you know, save for retirement, and so that's actually what we're seeing from debt cancellation. It's not that people are going out and buying luxury goods now. Nor are they going to use that money to go buy luxury goods in the future. Or they're actually going to go, uh, you know, provide for their families and afford basic necessities, um, and also, you know, start small businesses. As the president said, save for retirement. A you know, CNBC article um, or analysis came out earlier this week saying that that's how borrowers are actually using the funding, actually using the money. Um, so that is the benefit of debt cancellation. Is really just you know using the money that we would be paying for student debt, which borrowers shouldn't have had to take out in the first place. If we talk about morality. Um, and then using that to actually afford basic needs.
3: This is such a great discussion, and I want to say thank you so much to Jared and Dr. Malvo for coming on and giving your input on that. We do have to cut this shirt and go to a break. So for those of you who are watching right now, you are watching Roland Martin unfiltered on Black Star Network. We'll be right back. Thank you.
1: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here.
13: When we invest in ourselves, our glow, our vision, our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are black beyond measure.
2: Hatred on the streets, a horrific scene, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence.
4: Soil, you will not
10: white
4: inside. people are losing their damn minds. An angry pro-Trump mob storms the U.S. Capitol with some shame. We're about to see the rise of what I call white minority resistance. We have seen white folks in this country who simply cannot tolerate black folks voting. I think what we're seeing is the inevitable result of violent denial. This
1: is part of American history. Every time that people
4: of color have made progress, whether real or symbolic, there has been what Carol Anderson at Emory University calls white rage as a backlash. This is the rise of the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys. America, there's going to be more of this.
9: All the proud boys,
0: guys. This country is getting increasingly racist in its behaviors and its attitudes because of the fear of white people.
4: The fear that they're taking our jobs, they're taking our resources, they're taking our women. This is white fear. <laughs>
13: When we invest in ourselves, we all shine. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure.
4: Pull up a chair, take your seat the Black tape. With me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. 0196 the cash app is dollar sign rm unfiltered paypal is rmartin unfiltered venmo is rm unfiltered zell is roland at rolandsmartin.com
11: We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network.
7: I'm Chrisette Michelle. I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
3: The state of Louisiana agrees to halt the transfer of 25 incarcerated juveniles to the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. Earlier this month, Louisiana Governor John Bel Edwards said moving the juveniles from a Jefferson-Paris detention center to the adult prison would reduce the population at the Bridge City Center for youth near New Orleans until a more secure youth facility can be built or renovated. Edwards said the move would be a solution to the rise in violence, mismanagement, and frequent escapes from the state's juvenile lockups. Attorneys for the juvenile plaintiffs, the ACLU of Louisiana, and other advocates filed a lawsuit to stop the transfer to Louisiana's most notorious prison. Tuesday, attorneys for John, uh, Governor John Bell Edwards and the Louisiana Department of Corrections agreed with the plaintiff's attorneys to delay the plan to transfer the youths until September 15th. Well, here to tell us now what the state plans to do on September 16th is one of those attorneys, Ron Haley from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Welcome to the show. Hey, good evening. Good evening. So tell me a little bit about the importance of this lawsuit and how uh, the whole process of why you filed it and why this was important.
14: Well, listen, under no circumstance should any child be transferred to any adult facility, let alone the Louisiana State Penitentiary that has a history of uh, civil rights violations and human rights violations. As of right now as we speak, there is a lawsuit in the Middle District of Louisiana uh, filed by uh, inmates at LSP Uh, for such civil and human rights violations, yet we're supposed to believe that LSP is somehow now going to care for these children that would be housed there. I also believe that it's a slippery slope. You are arbitrarily picking a handful or two handfuls worth of uh, youth offenders to be placed there, but who's to say it's gonna stop there? Uh,
3: Now, I was uh, doing some research on this, and I know that you had stated that by taking these 25 to 50 juveniles and sending them away that was uh, lacking due process. So can you kind of explain what you meant by that statement?
14: Well, listen, anytime there isn't a transfer from a juvenile charge to an adult charge, let me give this example, let's say it's a 16 year old that is accused of the crime of murder and in the state of Louisiana, um, if you're accused of the crime of murder and you're under the age of 17, that case could be transferred to adult court, but you have to have a hearing before that case is transferred to adult court. I think you could make the analogy that if you're going to arbitrarily move these kids from a juvenile facility and place them at an adult facility, at the very least, they should have some type of due process, that it should not be some arbitrary decision by some administrator that would decide, okay, well, these kids are the ones that need to spend the rest of their time in Angola. Mm -hmm.
3: You make some very valid points. Let's bring in our panelists. Um, I'm sure they have some questions for you as well. And for those who are just now tuning in, I will tell you who our panelists are. We have Robert Patillo, the Executive Director, Rainbow Push Coalition, Peachtree Street Project, Dr. Naomi Carter, Associate Professor of the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. And we also have Dr. Jason Nichols, Senior Lecturer, African American Studies Department, University of Maryland College. So we're gonna go on ahead and start off with Dr. Nichols. What questions do you have? On this topic.
11: So, uh, thank you for being with us. My first question is: Are are there no other juvenile facilities that uh, these young men could have, or young uh, people could have been shifted to, rather than taking them to Angola? Was that like, uh, is that the state's argument that there is there are no other facilities within the state that could house 25 other uh, young people? Essentially, that's what they're
14: saying, and to that. I say, shame on you, state. You should have seen these problems come from years and years ago. Uh, However, you've done nothing to fix the infrastructure within OJJ. You have done nothing uh, to switch the model that should go towards a more restorative approach. Uh, Instead, you're taking a very punitive approach similar to what you do in adult courts. And the fact that the facilities that are currently in place are not up to code or not fit for these juveniles, do not punish them by sending them to Angola, fix your problems.
3: Thank you. You make some valid points, but I would also like to point out as well that these um, juveniles were going to be transferred to a facility that will not have adults in with them. So I wanted to preface it for that, but you make the argument that regardless that these juveniles need to receive that due process regardless because they are not adults, even though they're being transferred to a facility that won't actually have adult prisoners in it. So I wanted to preface it with that. Um, Dr. Carter, do you have any questions?
6: Yeah, so I want to thank Attorney Haley and the others who are doing this um, extraordinary work. Um, What is the argument for transferring juveniles to an adult facility in the same state that won't allow juveniles to make decisions about their body where abortion is concerned? Moreover, um, with the restorative justice approach, has that even gotten any consideration? Because I, I know they say they won't be in facilities with adults. But can we even trust that there's an infrastructure there that would house children and only children um, in this case? So there are a few questions in there. I'm sorry for that.
14: No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it piggybacks on what I was what I was going to say. Yes, they say that on Angola's grounds, there's going to be a separate facility where these kids are going to be. My issue with that is this today, the federal court judge, Judge Shelley Dick, ordered when we had the status conference on Tuesday, that the plan of action on how they're going to house these children, uh, how you're going to meet their needs, were supposed to be delivered to plaintiff's counsel by the end of the day today. Instead, what we're met with, and we just got this um, on PACER, which is the federal uh, filing system, uh, we got an emergency protective order uh, that was filed by the governor's office and the other defendants preventing them from providing us with that information that was ordered by today Uh, which Judge Dick uh, flatly shut down and denied that order. And so we're still in wait right now uh, for what that plan is. I was going to love to come on television uh, with you guys tonight and discuss, listen, this is what the plan is that they gave us, um, and discuss whether or not I thought it was good or not. But up to this point, we still have not seen the plan, which is absolutely troubling that that on July 19th, the governor says we have a plan to move these kids to Angola. And now we are, what, about three weeks out from when this move was supposed to take place, and we don't have a plan. Um,
3: Dr. Nichols, I want to, I have a question for you quickly. Um, from the research I've done, it's stated that Angola used to be a plantation, okay, a slave plantation, so you have that. And now you're taking teenagers to this, this facility. Um, Kind of give us the history on that and possibly the impact that it could have on juveniles that have to go to this facility.
11: Well, specifically, I can't speak uh, on on Angola, um, but one of the things that we know is uh, certainly the connections between slavery and our criminal justice system. And so it's definitely troubling that uh, at this time, at, at a time when... I'm sorry. My apologies. Okay, sorry. I I thought you had asked another question Um, at at this time that we would transfer uh, young people into an adult facility. We know the dangers. We've already seen the dangers of having young people anywhere near uh, adult people and just the stigma of being in an adult facility when you are a juvenile. uh, What that can do. There's plenty of studies out there that say that. So, again, particularly in a state like Louisiana, which has a history or, you know, we can go back to convict leasing and many of the things that have happened uh, in states like Louisiana uh, for them to be doing this uh, to young people, I think is really troubling. And uh, I, I appreciate the, the work that the gentlemen and of course the ACLU are doing in trying to block this They They should have prepared themselves. And the question is, Why don't they have other facilities throughout this state uh, in order to house these young people? And my other question is, if they don't have the facilities, what kind of care and treatment, what kind of health care, what kind of education are young people who are in the criminal justice system, in the juvenile system, what kind of care are they getting if they don't even have a bed or places for them to, to sleep, and that's not adequate? They're probably not getting other things that we expect for juveniles so that when they get out into society they can be productive citizens.
3: Thank you. You have any questions or any thoughts?
10: Uh, well, well, I did have one, one question. So uh, what we do understand fundamentally is that the purposes of punishment are fundamentally different when it comes to adult uh, detainees and the incarcerated versus juveniles. The purpose of ju- juvenile te- detention is one to uh, educate, to rehabilitate, and to prepare them to re-enter society, whereas the purposes of adult um, containment uh, is primarily retribution and uh, uh, preventing them from repeating the offense that they have been convicted of. Uh, is there Has there been any plan? presented to talk about even if these young people are transferred to Angola, how those needs for rehabilitation will be met, how those needs for education, as Dr. Nichols mentioned, uh, will be met, uh, how their psychological needs will be met, are they simply putting them there to get a PhD in crime by watching professional inmates uh, only to continue this cycle going forward?
14: And listen, that's a great point. Again, today, by the close of business, we were supposed to receive the plan. Plaintiffs' councils were supposed to receive the plan. Uh, so that we could hire our own juvenile justice expert to go actually inside Angola to see if the plan would actually work and render a report. Yet, as we are talking today, right now, I don't have a plan uh, in my possession, which leads me to believe there isn't a plan, that this is something that is just being developed as it's going, shooting off at the hip. Man, we can't shoot off the hip with kids. Uh, this is an absolute uh, atrocious. Uh, I think this is grossly negligent the fact that this is even considered placing him at lsp and the fact that uh, despite a judicial order ordering that plan to be delivered to us today we don't have it
3: well you know what thank you um attorney haley i really appreciate you joining us today and thank you to all the panelists who have uh great questions for him regarding this issue we do have to take it to a break but for those who have just tuned in you are watching roland martin unfiltered we'll be right back after this break
13: When we invest in ourselves, we're investing in what's next for all of us. Growing, creating, making moves that move us all forward. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure. On a next,
0: a balanced life with me, Dr. Jackie, our kids are going back to school. After two years of disruption, thanks to COVID, are we ready how to help them to prepare and what are the warning signs that our children are showing us social emotional physical all of these stresses and anxieties will be impacting our children. They'll be facing new challenges, anxieties, and emotions. And the adults in their lives need to figure out how to pull themselves together so that our kids will be able to do the same. Adults need to be paying closer attention now more so than ever. This generation who feels like they're unguided, we need to provide that guidance. That's next on A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, here at Black Star Network.
13: When we invest in ourselves, our glow, our vision, our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure.
4: 0196. The cash app is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is RM Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is Roland at RolandSMartin.com.
10: I'm Bill Duke. This is Diallo Riddle, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Stay
11: woke.
3: Savannah Daniels has been missing from Orlando, Florida since July 25, 2022. The 15-year-old is 5'3", weighs 115 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. Anyone with any information about Savannah Daniels should contact the Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Office at 407-836-4357. Again, that's 407-836-4357. Now, in Florida, the stage is set for who will go ahead, who will go head-to- head in the midterm elections. Now, the most recent watch race will be for the Florida Senate seat. Representative Val Demings won last night by a landslide to become the state's Democratic nominee vying to unseat Senator Marco Rubio. Governor Ron DeSantis will face off with former Governor Charles Crist, newcomer. Uh, progressive Gen Zer Maxwell Frost is up against Republican Calvin Wimbish. The two are running to fill Val Demon's seat. Now, if Frost wins, he'll be the first Gen Z member of Congress. Representative Matt Gaetz, who is still under federal in- investigation for sex trafficking, won last night's primary and will face Democrat Rebecca Jones in the fall. Let's go on ahead and take it over to our panelists to get your thoughts. On how the on the turnout, um, let's go on ahead and kick it off with Robert.
10: What's your thought? Well, I think I think what we did see is a very clear dis, uh, uh, distinction going on in the uh, both the midterm elections and going into 2024, uh, which is you had Democratic candidates running on actual issues, running on reality, uh, running on a platform of student loan reform, uh, talking about deficit reduction, uh, inflation reduction, uh, what has been done on infrastructure, uh, the, uh, debts, uh, the, the various legislative issues that President Biden has been able to get uh, pushed through. Uh, in the past month or two, you know. There There was a very low spot in the Biden administration uh, over the summer, where people really did think that uh, the Republicans were going to have a red wave going into this fall. But with these recent string of victories, um, they've definitely turned that around. Uh, In the meantime, if you look at some of the commercials coming out of DeSantis and coming out of some of the other uh, Republicans running, J.D. Vance and uh, uh, Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker, the standard bearers of the Republican Party, they have gotten farther and further disconnected from reality. I think that's going to show itself going into this fall elections. I think a perfect touchstone to that was today during President Biden's address about student loan reform. Uh, One reporter was able to shout out and get a question into President Biden before he left the room. Uh, And instead of asking a question about student loan reform, about the deficit, about inflation, he asked, how do you... uh, Did you know about the FBI raid in Mar-a-Lago? Because in their minds, that is where the American people are. And I think that disconnect between them and actual fundamental reality is what's going to help people like Val Demings and uh, Raphael Warnock and Fetterman uh, and Ryan and uh, and uh, Charles Booker and uh, Mandela Barnes around the country, Cheryl Beansley, to pull these races out. And I think Democrats might end up actually gaining seats in the Senate as opposed to predict the loss that it normally happens in a midterm election. Mm-hmm.
3: we may have lost you. Can you hear me, Dr. Carter?
2: Oh, I can hear you now.
6: I didn't hear you for a second. Sorry about that. No. I mean, I think we're... What Robert is speaking to though is this sort of the limited nature of the politics of grievance, right? There's only so many times you can claim that, you know, you're aggrieved or just you lost because someone cheated or something like that before people say, Well, what have you done for me lately? And we know politics is transactional. And I think what we're seeing around the country is that people are getting sick and tired of hearing about this. And I think, you know, with the with the abortion laws that we've seen in a lot of places like Kansas, like Louisiana like Florida and other places, that that is really pushing a lot of, I think, women in particular, white women. I don't think we talk enough about white women and their support of the Republican Party, who may have been sort of moderate Republicans, maybe even tepid right Republicans being pushed in directions that they didn't think that they would find themselves in because they didn't like that abort, that vote on abortion. And I think we're also seeing, you know, with what's happening with, um, you know, the student loan reform and other things that Democrats actually have a good shot at, at at the midterm elections in ways that we didn't think they did a few months ago. So I think if they can keep applying the pressure, I think if they can keep using the social media, and as we talked about last week, the messaging, most importantly, I think Democrats can pull off some really important upsets around
11: the country.
3: Dr. Nichols?
11: Yeah, I'm in agreement with both panelists. I think um, I was really happy to see uh, Maxwell Frost pull it off in Florida. It showed that uh, progressive ideals are not dead. Uh, the other thing was uh, New York 19 was a really big victory when Pat Ryan pulled that out. Uh, it showed that a message that worked, particularly uh, surrounding Roe, and uh, it shows that Democrats can still win swing districts. I think it was really... You know, we keep talking about Democrats gaining seats in the Senate, but but they could potentially keep the House. I mean, it's it's going to be a, a an uphill climb, but I think it's very possible if they can pull out those kinds of victories like they did in New York 19. Um, I think Val Demings has has a good shot against uh, against Rubio. I think there are others that I think are are a little more difficult. Tim Ryan against uh, J.D. Vance is going to be a difficult race, no matter how you know far. Uh, J.D. Vance is uh, from the mainstream, you know, we got to remember that, you know, Trump won o- uh, Ohio by eight points. So it's going to be an uphill climb. But I think Democrats still have a very good chance in all of those races. I was happy to see uh, some of the results. Um, and, but I also want to, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but we have to remember that Laura Loomer, who is a, a white nationalist, and anti- Muslim white nationalist got 44 percent of the vote in her district during the the primary. Um, I mean, that should be really disheartening. I mean, she came within a stone's throw of becoming the Republican nominee in a red district. So I think it's, um, you know, we still have to remain very vigilant. We need to remind the American public uh, of the dangers of some of these candidates that we see, particularly in these kind of swing states like Arizona. Uh, I don't know if we still consider Florida a swing state, but Florida and uh, Ohio and Wisconsin. There are some really dangerous people on the ballot, and we certainly need to to remind the American public the importance of voting in this upcoming uh, election and certainly in 2024 as well.
10: I had a follow-up for Dr. Nichols. So, Jason, you talked a little bit about that J.D. Vance versus uh, um, Tim Ryan race there in Ohio. Uh, it's what we've seen is there have been very few people able to kind of recreate that Trump magic, able to carry that Trump water. Uh, we see DeSantis doing his best, you know, kind of cosplay impression of Trump. Uh, he had the uh, the Top Gun ad the dropped this week where he pretended to be a fighter pilot uh, that was cringeworthy. And he talked about his war on weapons. Uh do you think that it's actually actually possible for anybody to recreate that kind of Spengalian type of hold that Trump has on the party because it doesn't seem to be transferable to other people. They just come off as crazy, whereas Trump is crazy but endearing for some reason to his base.
11: Well, I definitely think that, you know, nobody is Donald Trump. Nobody has the hold over Republicans like Donald Trump. I do think um, you know, one of the things that's benefiting Democrats is not only talking about policy like you and Dr. Carter just pointed out, but also just how incredibly bad uh, the Republican candidates are. You and I talked about this on your radio show on uh, W.A.O.K., uh, that, um, you know, Herschel Walker, who said, we have, don't we have enough trees in response to <laughs> a question about climate change, like, you know, these are really historic. Dr. Oz, who's talking about crudite, I had to Google it. I didn't know what crudite was. You know, and I'm supposedly a coastal elite. I'm the PhD coastal elite. I don't know what a, what a crudite was. So the whole thing is, these are historically bad candidates, um, and that gives Democrats a chance. But I, I really think, you know, J.D. Vance is a literary star. He is somebody who claims working class roots from Ohio, even though... He's been an investment banker probably longer than he was ever working class, and he worked for Peter Thiel, where he gets ten million dollars, uh, you know, a quarter from that guy. But yet, it's about the the legend that he puts forward. And the last poll I saw had him a little bit ahead of Tim Ryan, uh, forty-five to forty-two. So it's it's going to be tough. Uh, I don't think any of them is Trump. And to be honest, I hope Trump wins. To be you know, in for you know, the 2024 race. Because I think DeSantis is more difficult, uh, a matchup for any of the people, the Democrats who are coming up, because of the fact that DeSantis can make himself seem, he doesn't have the legal issues, and he can make himself uh, more endearing to the center. And that's what scares me, those people with those conservative values who are turned off by Trump's tweets and Trump's, you know, brashness. You know, DeSantis, uh, I think, could be attractive to them. So I, I, I worry more about DeSantis, and I hope Trump actually does keep that hold.
3: Some very, very good points. Um, thank you to our panelists, Robert Patillo, Dr. Naomi Carter, and Dr. Jason Nichols. Um, moving on, a Oregon man connected to a white supremacist support group pleads guilty to a hate crime and false statement charges for his participation in the assault of a black man. Randy Smith stood before a judge in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington and admitted to attacking a Washington state DJ because of his race on December 8, 2018. Now Smith said that he and some of his fellow support group members beat the black man who was serving as a DJ at the local bar because he believed the DJ was being disrespectful to the members of the white supremacist groups. The men repeatedly punched, kicked and stomped the black man while calling him racial slurs. Smith also pleaded guilty to making false statements and unlawful possession of a firearm. Smith's sentencing is on November 18th, and he faces up to 25 years in prison. Now you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. We will be right back, right here on Black Star Network.
15: I challenge myself as an artist and challenge, knowing that I'm going to challenge the audience, right? So oftentimes you come into this business off of one project where everybody's like, ooh, out. Okay, for me, it was Barbershop, Ricky, da 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 Ricky was nothing like me, growing up, right? <laughs> nothing like me growing up. But if that's people's first experience with you, right, as an audience member, they tend to think that's the real you, right? So, uh, you know, for me, after that, I got a whole bunch of offers to play roles just like Ricky, right? This Tupac-esque type of thing, right? And I just said no over and over And then you keep trying to do other things. And then I went through a, a series of romantic movies and romantic leads and, you know, I always try to bring some sort of gravitas to those roles. And then it was like, okay, well, but before I get into all of that, let me hit y'all with, you know, for color girls and, you know, step outside of the realm of, you know, what you expect of me to do um, as an audience member, in terms of being this romantic lead, and everything. because I didn't get into this business to be the romantic lead, you know, that dude. Like, I didn't get into it. You can get locked business. in. You can totally get locked in.
13: When we invest in ourselves, we all shine. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure.
9: Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. When we invest
13: in ourselves, we're investing in what's next for all of us. Growing creating, making moves that move us all forward. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure.
4: When you talk about Blackness and what happens in Black culture, we're about covering these things that matter to us, uh, speaking to our issues and concerns.
7: This is a genuine, people-powered movement. There's
4: a lot of stuff that we're not getting. You get it, and you spread the word. We wish to plead our own cause Zero one nine six. The Cash App is dollar sign RM unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin unfiltered. Venmo is RM unfiltered. Zell is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Hey, I'm R J. Black TV does matter. Dang it. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your boy Jacob Lattimore, and you're now watching Roland Martin right now. Eee. Stay woke. <laughs>
3: You are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'm Therese Garnier filling in for Roland today. And joining us, we have King Jaquelle Martin, an award winning director, actor, motivational speaker, and most importantly, Army veteran. Hi, King. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today?
12: Amazing. How are you doing today? Thank you. I am
3: doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful. Um, Before we get into the debut of your film at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood, um, let's backtrack a little bit and talk about what happened to you that inspired you to make this award-winning short film, which is called War on Friendly Grounds.
12: Okay, so I used to be in the United States Army. I was wrongfully assaulted by Officer Benjamin Fields. Officer Benjamin Fields is the same officer who assaulted the young lady at Spring Valley High School. So after seeing Fruitvale Station, shout out to Ryan Coogler, Michael B. Jordan, and Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, I wanted to tell my story. So I went to film school. I reached out to a couple of people, did some interviews. I wrote a book entitled The Warm Friendly Grounds, and I was able to turn the book into a um, short film.
3: Now, I want to go a little bit more into the situation and how you ended up being attacked by this officer and how this officer wasn't fired and somehow made his way to a different state and ended up attacking a teenager while she was sitting in her desk in a classroom. So tell me a little bit about how, what the circumstances around how he came to attack you.
12: Okay. So I was on my way home from work. I was stationed at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I lived maybe about two miles away from the base. I was living in Quail Run. On my way home, there was an officer who was named Benjamin Fields, who was already in the neighborhood. He was supposed to be out there looking for a white male, flashing little kids. But what I found out was that he wound up finding me going towards my house. And as I was going towards my house, I acknowledged him by nodding my head. In his police report, he took it as I was teasing him by nodding my head. Now, where I'm from, nodding your head is just a gesture or a way of saying hello. So I get out of my car. I walk to the door. I lived in a fourplex, so the officer who lived above me, she wasn't home right now, but her mother was. At the time, my wife was inside studying to be a nurse. When I put the keys in the door, I heard a car peel off. I turned around to see what's going on. The officer ran towards me. Uh, He was like, hey, you, hey, you, I'm out here for a noise violation. I was like, well, it couldn't have been me. I just got home. He asked me for my license and registration. I gave him the proper documents, but I had a paper license because I lost my picture license in Germany. And he was like, well, what the hell is this? And I said, dude, if you would just calm down, you'll see I just got back from Germany. I am a an officer of the law. You will not call me dude. I said, well, you address me by, hey, you. He said, well, that's because I don't know your name. Well, I am said, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know your name either. And next thing I know, he slams me to the ground. He starts punching on me and kicking me in my military uniform. The police officer who happened to live above me, she wound up running downstairs, knocking on the door, letting my wife know at the time that I was being wrongfully assaulted by the police in my military uniform. She runs out. He gets hysterical, because I used to play some of my pro football, and I used to take all the children to my football games. So, when all the women and children started watching, he gets on the radio. I think it was like some code, 1032, 1032, officer in distress. So this supervisor, Deputy Joseph Clark, and uh, multiple other officers arrived to the scene. He said, get her black A. She has pictures of me. So he ran up on my wife, slammed her into the car, put her hands behind her head. She drops her cell phone. He handcuffs her. You would think that would be enough. But then he picks her up, Officer Joseph Clark, picks her up by the hands, and then slams her into the ground, face first, while she was handcuffed. It's one thing for you to be a man and be assaulted by the police. It's another thing when you have to watch your loved one be insulted by the police in front of you, and there's nothing you can do about it, especially after you served your country. Like, I served my country for 10 years, and my question is, if I'm protecting my country, who's protecting me when I come back home?
5: Mm. So, you
12: make,
3: you make a very we, valid uh, point.
12: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we wind up going, um, the, the ambulance came because he wind up using mace on me. Um, we went down to the police station, and as we were getting into the paddy wagon, they threatened my wife with taking her to the hotel. And I said, what would you say to her? He said, you heard me. So he slammed the door, and the officer in the front of the paddy wagon heard the whole statement. He wound up writing a statement for us on our behalf. We went down to the police station. We got books. We got fingerprinted. And then the next morning, we wind up getting out on bomb. I told my first sergeant what happened. I had so much pepper spray on me when I went into the emergency room, they had to open up the door. We went back to the police station to get an internal affairs report, which I sent you, and you could just see the cockiness of the officer. No regrets, because if you're able to get away with it, why would you stop? So he basically admitted assaulting me, the racial statements, all the different comments about how he's glad Johnny Cochran's dead, how I'm nothing but another black statistic. And, you know, throughout this battle and this journey, he thought you would get support. You know, I reached out to the Army to try to get support from them. They turned their back on me. I reached out to the local NAACP in South Carolina, the Columbia branch, and they asked me how much money I was donating. I reached out to the ACLU, the Rainbow Push, and all these different organizations trying to get help, and I couldn't find the help that I needed. So I reached out to my mother, who was a first sergeant, which is my hero. She comes down. um, She was like, this won't happen on her watch. We wind up sending paperwork to the White House Um, then we took the paperwork to this post general, because they put me out the military with a 0% discharge. The general changed it and gave me a 70% discharge. Now, the problem with the discharge was the same people who did my medical evaluation were the same people that I was writing a report against. So I didn't even get a fair discharge out the military. It took me four years to go to court. We were found not guilty on all charges. The judge basically cried on the stand because of how bad the officer was lying and his cockiness because he was being protected by the badge. When it was time for the civil suit, my attorney, Mr. John Mobley, basically tricked me out of my civil suit and said, if I drop the assault charge, we could make so much money here if I just drop this charge. And he'll represent me pro bono. So when I signed the paperwork, they wind up throwing my case out. So I've never had my day in court for my civil suit. When Tashiana went to court, basically, the head juror admitted to, excuse me, the judge admitted to knowing the head juror. The head juror's dad helped build the courthouse. And that's when I looked in a moment, I said, this is rigged. This ain't about justice. This isn't a fair opportunity, because the judge is supposed to know no one in the jury pool. So she no longer wanted to fight, which I understand. And I became the little engine that could. I kept fighting, I kept fighting, I kept fighting. I wrote the book of War on Friendly Grounds, which is on Amazon, and then I went to film school and I turned the book into a short film.
3: It's amazing what you were able to overcome. I mean, just the thought, it, you know, there's been a lot of an uptick in um, attacks against service members in uniform by white police officers. And, and I know I had talked to you about this before, I witnessed my own father, who was a Marine, who actually flew President Obama around. Um, I was five years old, and he was taking us to Disney World. And I had to watch white police officer call him boy, pull a gun on him. And I'm sitting in the backseat, bawling my eyes. out, screaming, please don't shoot my daddy. And to this day, I still get anxiety when I see an officer. You know, just that thought. And, and the fact that you were in uniform. It, there's just no excuse for that you know and so that the fact that you were able to overcome it you weren't able to get justice in the judicial system however i feel like with this release of your film at the chinese theater on saturday may have helped with some of that justice now that being said um in 2020 your film war on friendly friendly grounds began winning every film festival you submitted to so What do you feel helped propel your film, and what do you feel contributed to its success?
12: I think timing is everything, and right now, if you look at America, we're in a place where we have to have some healing. No one's coming to save us. We are seeing this more often because of social media and because it's being posted all over the world where people can see. We had um, George Floyd's situation, and the crazy thing about it is, before George Floyd lost his life, may he rest in power and love, we had made the movie a war on friendly grounds and in the process of that we just wanted to tell the truth because I know I'm not the first nor I'm the last person that this will happen to and so what I realize is that I'm my ancestor's dream and what I mean by that statement is somebody prayed about me a long time ago so the freedom that I have right now comes from all the sacrifices that they did before me And so, my question is, for me, what will I do for the future and how will I honor the past for all the people who have lost their life, who continuously, you know, marched, who got waterboarded, who, like the the Taluga Nine, um, shout out to them. I spoke to, um, I did an interview with, um, I can't think of his name right now, Lord. But I did an interview with one of the members from the Taluga Nine, and they did the first Library sit-in, And when he shared with me, how they prepared him for the library sit-in that he he was so nervous that he had his book upside down. Mm. But it was something that has never been done before. But he knew it was something that had to be done. So for someone like that to sacrifice his life for someone like me I feel like that's what I'm doing right now in this moment and I feel like a war on friendly grounds is not just a movie but it's a movement mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity for us to show up and start having a conversation about how we can heal and build a bridge between the public and the police
3: mm. and on that note let's go on ahead and play your trailer for the film so that way people can get an idea of what it's about
15: Thank you guys. I really really appreciate this. So uh, I'm not really big on speeches, but let's have some cake. Come on
1: Welcome home
6: soldier it's
12: Good to be home sir
6: Well, you put your life on the line for this country And that's what makes you brave
12: and The truth is I just really wanted my battle buddies to get back home safely Hold on. on. Officer Clark
16: here.
13: Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.
6: Hey. Oh my God.
9: You about to pop the question.
11: (laughs) Hey you. Come here.
9: How may I help you, sir? is this your vehicle?
11: Yeah,
12: no. I want to know, will you marry me?
3: Now, King, uh, a little birdie told me that you come to the show bearing some gifts. So spill the beans. Yes. What would you bring for us?
12: So just for everyone who's watching the Roland Martin show, I'm so grateful for, one, what Mr. Roland has done as a trailblazer to build his own table and his own platform to stand up for people who look like us and just for us. You know, even though it's diversity and inclusion, but for what Mr. Roland has done, what I would like to do is I would like to give you the free link to the film for a week, and the password, in honor of what Mr. Roland Martin has done, the password is Roland Martin, and everyone will be able to watch this film for free for a week. And then we're going to put it up on Amazon. But for all the people who are watching right now, I just wanted to be able to be a blessing, because you can't ask for a blessing if you're not willing to be one.
3: That's beautiful. I know I'm going to do when I get off tonight. I'm going to go on ahead and and purchase that film, and I'm going to watch it myself. Now, I know we have some great panelists here with us today, and I'm sure... They have some really good questions for you. So we have Robert Patillo, the Executive Director, Rainbow Push Coalition, Peachtree Street Project. We also have Dr. Naomi Carter, Associate Professor, University of Maryland, School of Public Policy. And we also have Dr. Jason Nichols, the Senior Lecturer of African American Studies Department, University of Maryland. Um, let's start with Robert. Do you have any questions for King?
10: Uh, certainly. I did want to go back to the legal legal process uh, that you were speaking of. Uh, so, when kind of break down a little bit. Kind of, I, I may want to reach out to you after this. So, what happened between the uh, civil suit where you said they tried to convince you to dismiss it and you sold, uh, signed off on it, but then you weren't able to refile? Can you kind of explain that, uh, that part of the story a little bit? So, basically, when
12: you don't know the law, people can take advantage of you. And I was taken advantage of. My attorney told me that he would represent me in the civil suit if I dropped the assault charges. Now, actually, can I, can I call my mother? Can I speak to her or whatever else? Because I'm not really understanding all the legal. And he said it was basically a time frame that I had to sign it. So when I signed the paperwork to drop the assault charge, they threw out my whole case. So we applied to get it looked at at the United States Supreme Court. But the United States Supreme Court only sees cases when they want to. But mm-hmm. now that the same officer assaulted the young lady and Richland County has been under investigation, um, Mr. Captain, I think his name is Dan Johnson. Dan Johnson just went to jail for, I think, 51 counts of fraud, allegedly. But I know he did go to jail based off of that. So they've been under investigation. So my case should still be open based off of the prior activities that's still happening right now.
10: Well, that's going to also be part of what I, what I asked. So when, when, what was the time frame for this? Because it sounds like there shouldn't be a statutory uh, or statute limitations issue uh, with refiling, uh, if that's something that you still wanted to consider. Uh, so um, what I can do, uh, reach out to me after the show and let's talk about it. How about that?
12: That would be a blessing. I honestly would love my damn court. I protected this country and I feel like that is only right for me to be able to have the justice that I
6: protected. Mm -hmm.
3: Dr. Carter.
6: So first I want to say congratulations on your film and thank you for your service and also thank you for or, or I'm thankful that you're still here for yourself, for your family, for your wife. I know this has been a harrowing experience and I wanted to just ask how are you doing now because this kind of stuff doesn't just go away. That's
12: such a great question. I'm no longer married. Um, It's interesting because when you go see therapists or whatever else, they're like, well, why don't you stop fighting? Well, ma'am, I can't stop being Black. They'll give you medication. But what happens when the medication runs out? What happens when it wears off? I still can't change my skin color, you know? It's it's, it's very hard because how do you heal from something that you continuously see happen? And Mm -hmm. I still suffer from PTSD because I still see people who look just like me still losing their life. Mm -hmm. So for me, I argue with God because I feel like, am I not doing enough? And what more do you need me to do so that way we can have some positive controversy and be able to talk about this so we can heal? Because healing has to take place on both sides.
3: Mm, powerful, uh, Dr. Nichols.
11: Um, I also want to thank you for your service, um, and you know, you you hearing your story reminds me of one of my heroes, who is Hosea Williams, who you know uh, came home from war after getting a Purple Heart, and uh, took a drink out of a whites-only fountain and was beaten nearly to death. You know, put in the he got put into a hearse. Um, And the driver of the hearse, because they didn't have a black hospital anywhere near there, and uh, the driver of the hearse saw he was breathing and he stayed in the hospital for a month after that. Um, And he was somebody who literally was coming after, you know, being, you know, a war hero. So I I definitely want to thank you for your service. This is something that black men who have served have been dealing with for a long time. I also, I guess I had a question, uh, but I also want to make a quick statement and say, um, don't necessarily give up on therapy. You know, um, I've been in therapy. I know other black men. I promote that to to black men. Take this moment uh, to say that a lot of us are hurt and traumatized from a lot of different experiences. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, we oftentimes talk about white cops, but I've had experiences with black cops, too. So um, I think this is about the experience of of black men who are put Mm -hmm. into these positions, black men and women, and sometimes, unfortunately, children, who are are put into these positions. uh, And it's about the power structure. And sometimes that power structure includes, you know, black people in uniform, unfortunately. Um, My question was really about how you were saying that there is You said at first you had a zero percent discharge and then a 70 percent discharge Uh, for us civilians. What exactly does that mean? What is a zero percent discharge versus a 70 percent discharge?
12: Okay, so for your first comment, I agree with you about the police badge. But when you look at the police badge, it was birthed from the slave patrol badge. So how do you root out racism from something that was born from something that was racist? And if we can have like sexual harassment training for businesses, why wouldn't we have sensitivity training for police officers so that way they would understand the neighborhoods or the people that they're working with? You know what I mean? So that way they don't have to fear for their life because I don't think fearing for your life is a one-way street because you're the one with the gun and you're the one fearing for your life in certain situations, not all situations, just talking about certain ones that we see. And then you're saying you're resisting arrest. I'm getting hit you're punching me, you're you're macing me. You don't think as a human being I'm gonna react, that I'm not gonna be scared. So I think the fear for your life thing, I think that should be a two way street. And there's a difference between being a bully and an officer because when you're not following your training, you're no longer an officer. And if you're no longer conducting yourself as an officer, then you should be tried as a civilian because you're not conducting yourself in your police training because as a soldier, if I go to war and I don't follow the Geneva Convention Code, I can be looked at as a traitor. Well, I think those same rules should apply on our land, just not foreign land, but right here in America just as well. And so for the second part, in layman's terms, um, when I got put out the military, it's a medical discharge. So what they did was my percentage, my rate was zero percent. And then I went to the post general when he heard about my case and situation, and they reevaluated me and my PTSD. And then they wind up giving me a 70%. They raised it from 0% to 70% so I could start getting some retirement. Six months later, I did a reevaluation with the same people, and then they lowered me back to 30%. Mm. I wound moving to California to fight because so many veterans right now are fighting for the right medical percentage, right? That's why you have so many homeless veterans. When I got back to California, and when the young lady got assaulted by the police, all of a sudden they changed it to 100%. And I'm like, well, what was the difference between when I was first assaulted and then you saw the officer assaulting the young lady? The only reason why I feel like you're doing right by me now is because it's viral. But before it went viral, you didn't know me. You didn't want to help me. So because it went viral, now they gave me 100% which now I'm still fighting. What it, This is 2022. This happened to me in 05. I'm still fighting right now to get my 100% in my back pay from when it originally happened to me.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and so just this- to explain that a little bit more as well, so when you file for, you get these different ratings, depending on the percentage that they give you, is how much medical um, help you'll get? through the VA or community care, as well as they'll give you like a certain amount of pay per month depending on a specific rating. And so by them uh, taking them from zero to 70 and then backtracking it at 30%, I think at 30% you can't get any benefits as far as the VA um, or any sort of monthly pay for your disabilities. And so that's why that's so important that uh, you're rated correctly so that way you can get the pay so you can get um, seek the help that you need and you'll have the pay to fund that. So just just can I to clarify one, one thing. There. Absolutely.
5: So,
11: yeah, I just wanted to clarify. I definitely wasn't saying that racism wasn't involved. I'm saying that the racism is institutionalized and yes. that the racism is systemic. You know, I, I'm saying that it's not about individuals. It's actually part of the system. And that's exactly what you were saying when you connected it to slave patrols is that this is something that has grown throughout uh, our law enforcement and our criminal justice system from the very beginning. It's functioning the way it was designed to function. This is not a malfunction. This is the way it was designed uh, with white supremacy in it. And I'm saying that, you know, white supremacy, believe it or not, is an equal opportunity employer, maybe the only one we have. Uh, It can use black people sometimes, too.
12: Mm -hmm. Uh, And for me, what's so important, I believe the antivirus to the system that you're talking about is unity and love, because I believe it takes every color in the crayon box to create a beautiful picture. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is, the system wants to continue to keep all of us divided. If I can continue keeping you arguing, if I can keep you struggling for money, you will never unite. Now, I'm not putting the Bible on anyone, God on anyone, I'm just saying I believe man united can accomplish anything and that's why the system the system wins the more we argue the more we are divided the more we can't come together we can't create the change but in order to create the change the question is this what's willing what are you willing to sacrifice change comes with a price what are you willing to pay what are you willing to give up Because the truth is somebody sacrificed their lives and everything else already for you to even have the comforts that you have today. So don't complain about change if you're not willing to pay the piper to create the change that you want to see. Not one day, but consistently every day. And you can't save nobody else until you learn how to love yourself. Your biggest enemy is your enemy. So once you know how to have self-love, you can stand tall and then we all can come together standing tall in our love. I don't care what color you are to create the change that we wanna see.
3: Mm. Powerful, powerful. I mean, just the fact that you were able to take this experience and turn it into a positive. You're turning it into a film that can help others who've gone through this, um, feel the pain that you went through and unite and say, okay, what can we do to start making these changes? And we saw that start with, you know, the unfortunate killing of George Floyd. People uniting and saying this has got to stop. This cannot continue. And so, thank you for that fight that you put up, and and continuing to stay positive and using that tragedy tragedy and turning it into something positive that can help other people. Which just goes to show that uh, you always put service uh, service before self, and you, you're you still you're still serving. Even though you're not in uniform, you're still serving the American people. And so, very glad that you're doing that. Now, for those who uh, may not have caught where they can catch your film. Can you tell us uh, once again where they can find your film, how long they have to access it, um, so that way people can go right ahead right now and start downloading that?
12: Like I said, there's a special. It's on Vimeo. Uh, If you put the link up, they'll be able to see the link. The password is Roland Martin, because he is a trailblazer. And this man has sacrificed to build the platform to report the news to us, the truth. And that's why I named it Roland Martin in honor of him. For It's my way of saying thank you. I appreciate everything that you've done, who you are. And people might see your platform, but they don't know the race that you ran to build your platform. So I honor you, King. I thank you, King. I appreciate you
3: i love that that's beautiful so folks check out the link that's on the screen right now this is only for you so everyone that's viewing right now you are the only ones that have access to his film right now so please show some support check it out it's it's a great film um you should definitely um check it out when you get a chance king also thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and again i just find it so commit uh, commendable and just just hearing your story, like I, I was trying to fight tears, because I'm like, this is this is just beautiful. How you're able to turn that, um, folks. You are now watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on Black Star Network. We're gonna take it to a break, but don't forget to download his clip on Vimeo. We'll see you after this break.
1: Check the backseat. Check the backseat. I right, come here.
13: Our glow, our vision, our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are black beyond measure.
2: Hatred on the streets, a horrific scene, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence.
4: White people are moving.
13: When we invest in ourselves, we all shine. Together, we are black beyond measure.
7: Hey, I'm Amber Stevens West. Yo, what up,
12: y'all? This is Jay Ellis, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
3: Reading definitely expands the imagination, especially in children. Well, one children's author uh, created an app that brings a book character, multiple book characters actually, to life. The creator and author of the Rainbow Me book collection figured out how to bring folklore and fairy tale characters of color, specifically, from around the world to life in this app joining us right now from greensboro north carolina we have kia johnson the founder of rainbow me kids welcome and thank you so much for joining us how are you today how are you doing trace oh i'm believe i believe we have we're having some audio issues i'm sorry can you repeat that i'm doing well can you hear me okay yes i can hear you i can hear you um (laughs) First and foremost, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. I know as a kid, um, you know, we had Reading Rainbow or we had, you know, you would go to different libraries and they would have competitions. If you read 25 books, you get a free pizza. We had those kind of things, right? Never, ever would have I imagined kids today being able to see stuff in 4D. And I know if they had that back then, I probably would have read way more books. So let me stop blabbing because I'm so fascinated by this. Please tell me how you came up with the idea and let everyone know how they can access it.
16: Sure, so thank you again for having me. Um, Came up with the idea for this book, wanted to create a way that would bring stories to life in an exciting way, in a unique way, we had um, began creating um, in-person events uh, where we would bring movies to life. And the kids would come, we'd create spaces for the kids that brought different parts of a movie to, um, to life. They would watch the movie, enjoy themselves. And I was like, I wanted to do something that would do this for as many kids as possible. And so um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Pokemon, or of course you're familiar, but remember the Pokemon Go game. I remember when that first came out, I was like, I wanna do something with this technology. Mm -hmm. And um, speaking with a friend of mine um, about an idea he had, we came together and I was like, I'm gonna put this in a book, but I wanna wanna introduce characters that the uh, kids are gonna love, become familiar with, enjoy their stories and make them memorable. And so added the technology, the augmented reality technology, to make the characters and their stories memorable. Mm.
3: That is amazing. Um, you know, I read for a living, and I've found it that I don't like reading as much. So uh, will there be an adult version of this? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I would totally download that. It is so cool. Um, so kind of explain how it actually works. So like, how does it g- explain it? I love it.
16: Sure, absolutely, And I can show you if that's OK. Even better. All right, so, my first book was, I was for Oshun, and this is the one that introduces folklore characters from A to Z uh, from around the world. They're all of color. And we have an app, the Rainbow Me Kids app. You can download it, um, it's right here in the corner. You can download it from your app store. Once you finish reading the book, I'll turn to one of my favorite characters here, which is, A is for Afiong, the proud princess. Select the book, then you take your mobile device.
7: I am a princess. Who do you want to marry anybody? And then I was tricked. My story is from the Akan people of Ghana.
16: And that's it. So every character gives more, shares a little bit more about their story and their countries of origin. Um, One question that parents always ask is, does it read the book? No, the app does not read the book for the children. You still have to read the book to to get the concept of the book. This is just a really, really cool pop-up feature that introduces each character. And so we have 26 characters in our first book. And then we have a second book, How Kofi Amiro Became the Hero of Amiro. And this book is the complete story of the K character in O is for Oshun. Wow. So these are our first two books, two more books in the coffer. And we, like, we have 26 characters. So we have 26 books coming down the pike. <laughs>
3: (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. And for those parents that ask that, they probably, they're trying to get out of reading to their kids. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, just read to them so we don't have to. Oh my gosh. We still want the kids to read because that's how they learn. Um, Wow, that's so fascinating. So you said you have several books coming out. So when will the launch of these other books happen so people can look out for them?
16: We have the next two books, um, which is Gamara the Giant Princess and um, Damani Manzana and the Hungry Trolls. Both of those will be coming out next year.
3: Excellent, excellent. And, and so for those who are interested in purchasing um, some of these books, and you said you can just go on a regular app store to get the app, where can they go? What's your website?
16: You can go on RainbowMeKids.com.
3: I love it. I'm going to be going on it. I don't even have kids. I have a dog. I'll just get it just, you know, just to play with my dog with it.
16: Um, cousins, nieces, nephews.
3: <laughs> I love it. That is so impressive. I'm very impressed by that. So I wish you the best with your books. I hope others will go to your website and check it out themselves. And then before I let you go, though, I know our panelists probably have a ton of questions as well. And they probably have kids. So we're, <laughs> we're going to send it over to our panelists. Um, Let's start off with Dr. Carter. Do you have any questions? I do.
6: This is so great. And as a person who loved reading, as a kid who loved reading, this is exciting. Um, so no kids here. But how do you select your stories? Like, what makes you say this is the character we want to bring to life for these kids? I try
16: to mix. I try to mix and match as much as possible. So we have we have princesses. We have kings, we have princes, we have magical animals, we have fairies, we have some, um, gods and goddesses. Um, so I tried to get a good mix from, um, there's plenty of stories from around the world. And the first book again, just goes through 26 of them. So again, just trying to get, um, a little bit of everything. Uh, so kids could see reflections of themselves and different types of
7: characters.
3: I was actually getting ready to say that that's the beautiful, beautiful, um, The beauty of this, the fact that a lot of children of color feel they aren't represented. So to be able to have something like this where you have them being represented as queens and kings and princesses, it's so amazing. And the 3D, 4D aspect of it as well, you know, it's going to inspire them more and just give them something to look forward to. Um, uh, Robert, you have any questions?
10: Uh, yeah, that's what I do. And I, like you, don't have any kids yet that have been able to find me. Uh, but I do uh, <laughs> wonder. Uh, in a lot of school districts around the country, we're dealing with, you know, these uh, people who consider anything along this line to be critical race theory. They're banning books in Florida. If you look at some of these lists of books that have been banned, uh, they're banning How the cage Birds Sing and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, can you kind of talk about why it's so important for parents to do this type of education for their children at home and those reading at home because they're no longer going to be able to get this type of enrichment in the public school or even in public libraries? Uh, many of these people have their way.
16: Sure, absolutely. So you, I mean, the the cliché is, you know, representation matters. The reason that it matters is not just so that um, our our kids of color can see reflections of themselves, but when kids that are uh, not of color see positive representations of characters of color, their ideology around um, particular people remains positive. Um, and you're right, it's going to be important that that parents, if you have homeschoolers, parents just for bedtime reading, there is a movement to prevent anything that features ma- main characters of color, whether it talks about um, history or not. Um, and so it's going to be extremely important to make sure that you start adding, if you haven't already, these, these books to your libraries.
3: Mm. Valid point. Dr. Nichols?
11: Well, I have enough kids for everybody on the panel, so <laughs> um, I'll just, you know, if anybody wants one, I can I can loan them out.
3: Why did I just uh, think of Oprah when you said that? You get a kid, you get a kid, you get a kid. <laughs> you all get kids.
10: Jason's the Nick Cannon of the panel.
11: Oh. I'm not quite there, and all my children are by one woman, but uh... <laughs> let, let me just... Uh you know, say, uh, well, first of all, this, this looks amazing. This app looks incredible. Um, I wanted to ask, are there specific authors that you work with or are you just finding books? How does the relationship with the authors work? So I'm the author of the first book of the first two books. (laughs) And then just because I wanted to put this
16: together, um, and, and, and and put it out there. This is, you know, we're a start, we were a startup. So, you know, you do what you have to do. Um the third book, The Dimani and di Manzana, the author is as an, an elementary school principal. Right. And the stories that the stories that we have are actual folklore and fairy tale stories. Right. Now, what we've done um, is that we've had to ad- adapt some of them um, because when you start going to old the the traditional storyline, sometimes it can get a little um, dark. <laughs> Uh, think about I don't know the traditional Cinderella. I think her toes are actually cut off with the knife or something. So you know you have to adapt it so that the kids can um, um, so that is palatable for for uh, young kids. And so um, we we find the stories, we adapt them to the Rainbow Me platform. And uh, the third book again is written by um, Dr. Um, Latoy Kennedy, who is an elementary school principal uh, here in Greensboro. But we will be looking for um, other authors uh, for the other 20, how many books we have left? 22 books.
3: Now, you mentioned your website where um, <clears throat> people can go to find out information. Now, if there are individuals who would like to be an author, can they go to your website as well? Or is there a specific email that they can reach out to in case they're interested in, in being a part of this?
16: Sure, they can go to the website. Um, If you go to Rainbow Me Kids, there's a a pop-up that comes up where you can um, sign up for our email, or you can talk to me directly, or you can send it directly uh, to the company email, which is hello, H-E-L-L-O, at rainbowmekids.com.
3: Excellent, excellent. I'm picturing Dr. Nichols downloading the app right now. (laughs) like so I'm gonna get that right now well <laughs> Kia thank you so much for joining us um, this is so fascinating I'm not kidding you I don't have children but I'm literally gonna go download this afterwards cuz I just want to test it out cuz I'm like this is really fascinating thank so, you so much. I'm sorry okay, thank you so much yes absolutely thank you for joining us all right she was uh, spreading a little black girl magic right there speaking of black girl magic before we go i'm gonna tell you about a little black girl magic that was going on on full display at the 2022 u.s gymnastic championship for the first time black women swept the top three spots in the competition Connor mcclain captured the u.s all-around title while Shalise jones and jordan childs came in second and third place let's go to our panelists really quickly what do you think about that i mean this is This is just great. All right, let's start off with um, Dr. Carter. What do you think about that?
6: Well, look, I mean, I think black athletic talent is undeniable. I mean, there's... Um, virtually, there are very few sports, excuse me, um, where you don't see black athletes dominate. And I think it's also important, I think, that we consider women athletes in the same way that we think about men when we talk about the greats. I think for many people, we only think of like Serena Williams. right? She's the woman um, who's sort of broken through the cultural zeitgeist and is, is regularly mentioned as one of the greatest athletes of all time. But I think when we see these young women and we know that there's another generation uh, of, of young women. Uh, Black women who are extraordinary athletes, who are very capable. Um, And I think this just brings a smile to all of our hearts when
10: we we see things like this.
3: So true. So true. Um, Robert.
10: I think this shows the importance of what happens when you give people opportunity. For years, we thought that gymnastics was just a sport uh, for Eastern European little white girls. You know, Nadia Comaneci, or you know, all uh, you know, uh, so on and so forth. I've literally forgotten every single one of their names to this day quickly. <laughs> um, but once you open those doors up to young black girls and give them the opportunity to compete, the opportunity uh, to train, give them the same resources you give everyone else, uh, this is just proof that they can excel. You know, being from Georgia in the '96 Olympics, all we had was Dominique Dawes and shout out to her for really inspiring a generation and then Gabby Douglas and of course Simone Biles after her Mm. but it's just proof that when you give our young people the opportunity they will excel and they will show you that all these barriers can be breaking down all they need is the chance to prove themselves.
3: Mm. Well said well said. Dr. Nichols.
11: Yeah I want to give a shout out to Dominique Dawes as well she's from Maryland so shout out to her Um, and, and also to Gabby Douglas and to Uh, Simone Biles, I think that they are an important part of this story because they showed that it was possible and they promoted the sport the same way Tiger Woods did for golf. And a lot of these sports, we looked at it as they were cost prohibitive, and we see still that when black people get the opportunity, I'd like to see more black swimmers. So, you know, that's the next Ah. sport that I'd like to see black people start to conquer. And, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of that, it comes down to, opportunity and access, as as uh, Robert just pointed out. So uh, I think, you know, the more programs that we get, the more opportunities, the more scholarships that people can get. We're going to see black people competing in all different kinds of sports and also, you know, in things like chess and, and other opportunities uh, to, to flex their physical and intellectual muscles. I think we'll see that, you know, Black people are strong and capable and durable and incredible people.
3: Exactly, as these ladies just showed everyone, showed the entire world. Um, Well, first, before we go, I wanna thank you all for joining us today, um, our panelists specifically. Um, Thank you, Robert, thank you, Dr. Carter, and thank you, Dr. Nichols. This has been such a great show, and it was great hearing your input and your questions to all the guests that we had today. Also, I want to mention to those who are watching, um, if you didn't get a chance to catch the link to to download the film War on Friendly Grounds, we're going to put that up on the screen for you. Only people that watch this show will have access to this film. So take advantage of it because it's an amazing film of overcoming racial injustices and turning that into something that can help others. So we're going to go on ahead and pop that up on the screen there. Make sure you check it out. And on that note, make sure that you all get some rest tonight. Have a wonderful night, and I'll see you all tomorrow. Have a good night.
4: Zero one nine six. The cash app is dollar sign RM unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin unfiltered. Venmo is RM unfiltered. Zell is rolling at RolandSMartin.com. Check
5: the
2: back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat